morning, and it's good to be with you. I told uh, some, uh, Jason Gilbert and I were talking about being gone. Uh, you know, we've both been out of town. I, I was out this Thursday night through last night. And, uh, you know, there's no place like home. And, and when I say that, I don't mean Columbus, Mississippi, where I grew up. But I mean here. And I mean Grace Fellowship. Uh, it, it is more apparent to me every time that I, every year goes by and every time I go visit people back home that I love and care dearly about and visit a place that used to be home, that this is home. You are my family. And I'm so excited to be with you. And, and it, it just grows the passion in me to, to be with you and to teach and to preach uh, God's Word. If you'll take first the, your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We do want to continue in our series on the resurrection. Before I do that, you know, Chris Tomlin wrote that uh, um, that rendition, that uh, addition to Amazing Grace. You know, I don't, I don't know. I've never, obviously, uh, don't know Chris Tomlin. Don't know what really moved him to write that. I just find it so fitting, historically, when you talk about who... John Newton was, who wrote the original Amazing Grace as a pastor, as an older man, pastoring in England, writing hymns as part of his work um, to minister actually to one flock, one member in his flock, William um, um, Blank. Cooper, yeah, Blank. Uh William Cooper, who was depressed. Newton really set out to write hymns with him to encourage him, to bring him out of depression. And uh, give him uh, courage, give his soul courage. Newton wrote Amazing Grace. And you know maybe that Newton grew up as, as, a, as, a, as a pagan, as a complete and utter pagan. His father and mother were so hard on him, he left home, went to the docks, sold himself into uh, uh, servanthood or, or into working alongside a slave trader. And spent years, several years, crossing the, the, the ocean, bringing slaves back and forth from the, the shore of Africa into England, and they were sold. And also into the colonies down in the south, uh, south of the United States. Think about that, that verse, my chains fell off. Think about that. But here's a man who had spent his young years chaining men up in the depths of a ship. Chaining men to bring them and sell them like property. And then God radically saved him. And he became a preacher of God's word. I can't help but think that when Chris Tomlin goes to be with the Lord, however that might be and whenever that is, that the old man Newton will hug his neck and thank him for telling a little piece of his story. My chains fell off. I was redeemed. That's what that story is all about. You know, your chains, if you've come to Christ, have fallen off. Into your darkness came the resurrection light of Jesus Christ through the power of His Spirit. You have been set free. Your soul has been redeemed. You're no longer in the bottom of the ship, chained like property belonging to another God. You have been set free. You are now alive. You are free you have place at the table of God. You have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And truly, Christ is all that you have. Christ is all that you have. And He is all you need. And He's all that I need. And so, when I hear a song like that, it just 
thrills me to hear the theology behind those songs and behind those hymns. And it really ties into the message. The resurrection applied. He must reign. The resurrection applied. The, the, the series, that's what we're doing, is trying to understand the application of the resurrection in our life. And this week, we see he must reign. That's, that's really Paul's point in this paragraph. And, you know, it's not uncommon for pastors to bite off more than they can chew. Verse 20 through 28 is the paragraph. I started out and labored and worked and studied and wrote and thought. And, and then, then as the week drew closer and closer to today, I realized I, I can't preach all of that. I mean, I can't preach that. The eight verses is just too much. So we're going to kind of rest and go into the first couple of verses. This is all we're going to get into today. But the, there'll be two parts to this sermon. One this week, one next week. He must reign. Christ must reign. Last week we established the fact that the resurrection was taught throughout the Old Testament. Much to the disbelief of some, the resurrection was not a new doctrine in the New Testament. It wasn't something that was invented by Christ and His apostles. God had been teaching about the resurrection from the time of Adam through to Christ. And there were many passages we went through, one right after another. God, from the beginning, has been painting a beautiful picture for all of us to see. And the picture is the picture of redemption, redeeming us from the bleak, black backdrop of death. That's what God's doing, redeeming us from that black backdrop of death. And like any painting, you need a backdrop so that in full relief of that backdrop, there stands out the, the, the message or the, the point of the picture. The backdrop which sets off for us the picture of redemption, Jesus Christ, and makes Him even more bright to our eyes, is the backdrop of death. The, the, the very fact that we die. And so today, I don't want to spend any time in the Old Testament... I want to look at the, the teaching and the life of Christ as an introduction to the message about He must reign. And I want to quickly run through some of the gospel accounts about resurrection, okay? And just hang in there with me again. Write these verses down. Go back and look at them uh, in the week to come. I think it will encourage your soul. Last week we looked at the Old Testament. This week we look at the Gospels. We find a passage like Luke 7, 11 through 17. Now... Jesus was the kind of man who, when you invited him to a funeral, he might put an end to the whole deal. That's right. Jesus headed into Nain. When he reaches the gates of the city in Luke 7, 11 through 17, he and his disciples and a great crowd went with him as he drew near to the gate of the town. Behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. On Mother's Day, I mean, here's this mother. Well, just think about it, mothers. Her only son, and she is a widow. What, what is the Bible telling us? She's hopeless. She's now destitute. She has nothing. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Professional mourners and the like. People wailing and weeping and crying. And when the Lord saw her, He had compassion on her. And said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the, the, the bear, and the bearers stood still. He touched the, the, the cot on which they were carrying this young man, and the men stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him 
to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has risen among us. Do you remember Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament resurrected the dead? A great prophet has come among us and God has visited his people. All these years of silence from the end of God speaking in the Old Covenant to the birth of Jesus. All these years of silence until John the Baptist. And now God is with his people. They notice it through his raising this dead man. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Then we see in Matthew 9, 18 through 26, another story about Jairus' daughter. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. The faith of, of this man is astounding. Come, just put your hand on her, Jesus, and she'll live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Resurrection power. If I can just touch Jesus, my sickness will go away. 12 years she's been suffering with this. And all she does is say, if I can just get close enough to touch him, I'll be healed. Resurrection power. Right here in Jesus. She sees it in him. Jesus turned and said to her when he saw her, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, all these professional, again, people who were paid to come and play the flute and sing songs of death and destruction, this black and bleak backdrop, and then Jesus shows up. And he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but asleep. Jesus discharges them. You, you, you need to get out of here. The girl's alive. They laughed at him. He's, he's being mocked. But when the crowd had been made to go outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. What was the report? The report was resurrection. The report was we have one among us who is from God and has power even over death. Death is the greatest of all enemies for humans, isn't it? It's what you fear more than anything else. If you're honest and you're not playing Mr. or Miss Tough person, you'll be honest you're scared to die. You don't know what it's like. I don't know what it's like. We've never felt it. We've never, we've seen it, but even seeing it scares us. It feels unnatural. We know it's coming and there's nothing we can do about it, but it just overtakes us if we sit and think and contemplate it. If you've held the hand of a dying man or woman, if you sat and held and sang to a child as that child crossed from this life to the next, you know what I'm speaking about. You are afraid to die. Afraid of death, at the very least. And Jesus, what's being reported is Jesus has power over death. John eleven twenty one through 27, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. What is she talking about? She's saying you healed the widow's son... You healed Jairus' daughter. You healed Peter's mother-in-law. Even after they were dead, if you want him alive, he will be alive. She believed in the resurrection power of Jesus. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. The resurrection in full view. And she knew 
that he would rise again and said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. He said, I'm the resurrection and life. If you believe in me, yet though you die, you will live. Resurrection in full view. And we know the rest of the story, don't we? He had the stone rolled away and he stood in front of an open grave, weeping tears and calls forth Lazarus from the dead. Four days dead. And yet Jesus calls him to life. Jesus has power over death. Jesus has power over the grave. In His ministry, He's fulfilling what the Old Testament said was the case. That God is painting a beautiful, marvelous picture. That though man has sinned and come into the place of death, God will redeem those who are in Christ. Christ is the resurrection and the life. John 5, 28-29, a clear teaching. Not an act of resurrection, but a teaching on resurrection. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming... When all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is saying, don't marvel. And we're going to look at this passage again in just a minute in understanding 1 Corinthians 15. But in this passage right here we see, He says, don't marvel that I can raise spiritually people from the dead. Let me tell you something. There's coming a day when everyone in the grave Both those who believe and those who do not believe who are in the grave. Every one of them, notice that, one resurrection, not two, one. Everyone in the grave will hear my voice and come forward. Those who did righteous unto life and those who rejected me and were disobedient unto judgment. Indeed, Matthew 25 paints the picture clearly. All of the dead will come before Christ. Everyone, you, me, all men from all time will come before Christ in that day when we hear His voice. Listen, if you die tomorrow and your body goes in the grave, there will come a day when Christ's voice will be heard over all the earth and all of the dead will come out of the grave. All at one time. And stand before Him. And he will, like a shepherd, divide his sheep from the goats. He will divide to himself those who who have believed in him. And he will separate himself forever from those who have rejected him. Jesus has power. Jesus has authority. And the proof of his power, the proof of his authority, is his power over the greatest enemy, which is death. Resurrection power. That's the proof of his power. In his teaching, Luke, and we won't read it all, Luke, tells us in Luke 16, 19 through 31 that Jesus taught about the rich man and Lazarus. I find it interesting that Jesus in teaching taught about Lazarus, who he raised from the dead. You remember? He said, this time Lazarus dies and goes to the bosom of Abraham, the place where those who are righteous go. And the rich man dies and goes into torment, not eternal hell, the, the fire of hell, but into torment. Directly at their death, they go to these places. And Jesus says that there's a great gulf between them that cannot be spanned. Once you're there, you're there. Once you're in Christ and you're in His bosom, you will forever be there. Once you are in hell, once you're in the torment of hell, you will forever be there. There is no passing between the two. There's no way to come from hell to heaven. 
Once in hell, in judgment, is sealed over you. There is no hope. That's his teaching. And he says in that teaching, now this ought to bring your mind to bear on the importance of what I'm going to teach you today, what the Word of God is going to teach you. Even if I raised up a dead man and sent him to your brothers, rich man, they won't believe. Because though the resurrection is powerful, it is the Word of God under the influence of the Spirit which brings life. If they won't believe the Word of God, they will not even believe a dead man who's raised. And we know that's true, isn't it? What was the response when Lazarus was raised from the dead in John 12? What are we told? Lazarus was raised from the dead. As exhibit A of God's power through Christ over death. And what did the Jews want to do? Kill him. Kill him. They didn't want to believe him when he said, I was dead. Believe me, there's a place called heaven, paradise. I was there. For four days I was there. My spirit was with God. And then Jesus called me back to life. And because of the testimony which he shared with the Jews, they wanted to kill him. They didn't want to believe the dead man because they didn't believe the word of God. So, When you're here, sinner, lost man, woman, child, and you're saying, God, if you'll just give me one more proof, if you'll just give me one more thing, I'll believe in you. No, you won't. That is a lie. If you won't believe the Word of God as it is taught to you, as you read it, you won't believe anything, even a dead man walking. Jesus has power over death. Jesus has power over the grave. John 12, 23 through 25, speaking of his own death, Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, thinking about his own life, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And I put that at the end because it leads us into what Paul is teaching us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today. He must reign. And he must reign. He is reigning over the world, even now. But friend, He must reign over you. The greatest application of the resurrection is to your own heart. If you are not under His reign and rule today, I'm calling you, He is calling you, His Spirit is calling you, and this Word is calling you to move over Die to yourself. He who loses his life will gain it. He who gains his life will lose it. Lose your life today and gain Christ. That's the call of this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus' life lived out in front of his disciples pointed to the coming resurrection. He raised or revived or resuscitated, we might say, the dead time and time again so that those who are, were near him might see his real power over death. When a liberal theologian tells you the meaning of the, of the resurrection is simply spiritually applied to your heart, it spiritually has meaning. That's hogwash. If it doesn't have true physical implications, if you're not really going to be raised up from the dead, it has no spiritual meaning for you. It's not enough to say, I believe that in Christ we all spiritually live. That's half of the doctrine. Not all of it. And this true... But it's not true enough. If you're not going to physically live again, 
then you're not spiritually alive. The resurrection validates, gives meaning to your faith. And we've seen that. And I want to show you again, running through the, to introduce, to tie us into this passage I'm teaching, all the, what we've learned so far. We're looking at verses 20 through 28. We've already seen that the resurrection applied to our life brings humility in verses 8 through 11. Paul said, last of all, he appeared to me as one untimely born. I'm an apostle, but I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. All that I am is by the grace of God. God, And whatever I am, I am only because of the grace of God. Humility is brought into the life of the one who's truly had the resurrection applied you still have not just the seed or kernel of pride, but pride is the overwhelming name for your life. You don't know the resurrection. When you know the resurrection and the power of it has been applied to your heart, pride is banished. Humility reigns. We see it in the life of Paul. We see it in verses 8 through 11. Not only is it applied to bring humility, but the resurrection brings power in preaching. Verses 12 through 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Our preaching is in vain. In other words, I'm here in an act of futility. I'm wasting my life. You're wasting your life because not only is... My preaching in vain, but your faith is in vain if Christ is not raised from the dead. The resurrection validates and gives meaning to your faith. It's a fool's tale when they say, Oh, I, I, the resurrection really isn't that crucial. I still believe in Jesus and the salvation He brings. Even if the resurrection weren't true, I would believe in Jesus. I wouldn't. I don't mean that blasphemously. Don't misunderstand. But I think that's what Paul is saying. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, if they produce a body sometime between now and my death, and it is truly the body of Jesus Christ, I'm not going to ever be called a Christian again. I'm going to go live life and let it live. Because if He wasn't raised, faith is in vain. Faith is in vain, preaching is in vain, and we are the most prideful people in the world. But with the resurrection, we are humbled. Our preaching has meaning and our faith is validated. That's what Paul says in the beginning of this passage. And finally, we saw that the resurrection makes life meaningful. In verses 12 through 19, he closes out in verse 19 by saying, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. And I turn that around to a positive to say, if you have Christ, you know Him, and the power of His resurrection, your life has the ultimate meaning. Some of you are so sad. I can see it on your faces Sunday after Sunday. Some of you are groping through life, trying to find meaning. You're trying to find meaning in your wife, your husband, your children, your job, your accomplishments at school. You're trying to find meaning through independence. Being a free person to do whatever you choose. I'm telling you, your life is meaningless today if you don't have Christ. May I say this? May I be so bold? If you don't have Christ, if you don't have Christ, you have nothing. As I think about this passage, more and more is clear to me. Amy and I were talking this week, last night to be exact. 
And in our talk, she says, she said, Carlton, the more I think about Christ, the more I think about Him and His perfection and His goodness in His mercy, in His love, in His grace, the more I think about that, the more I realize everything I do is sin. Everything I do is sin. I said, yeah. David said, when I repented of my sin, my sin became exceedingly great. What did he mean by that? He meant... Even when he came to the point of repentance, knowing that he was a sinner, it was at that moment that God said, not only are your sins that you knew about sinful, but your very goodness is sinfulness, and your repentance that you're pouring out to me right now is sin. Everything in you is bad. Everything in me is bad. There's no good in me. There's no good in you. And you have no hope without this resurrection applied to your heart. And that's where I want to get into the text. Let's read it together. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father and after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until. Now I just emphasize that to say he's reigning. Some of you are hoping one day he will reign. I tell you he is reigning. He is seated on the throne of David forever. He reigns. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has already put all things in subjection under his feet. It's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. God is the point. Sola Dea Gloria. Martin Luther didn't dream that up. Calvin didn't write his institutes amiss. They saw this passage and said, the glory of God is the ultimate purpose of all things, even the purpose of the resurrection. Now, I just want to say in comment, because I've read the whole passage, I'm going to preach a few verses, and then I'm going to preach the rest next week, and I don't want to preach next week's message this week. But it's all tied together. Listen to me. As Adam was king and ruler, co-regent with God, and fell into sin, and therefore everyone under his reign fell under sin in him. So Christ is king of kings and Lord of lords, even this day reigning in heaven. It is a true and spiritual reign. People often will say to me, you you don't believe in a reigning time, a, a reigning millennium. Yes, I believe in the truest of all reign. He's reigning now, seated at the right hand of the Father, putting all things in subjection under His feet. Now He is acting that out, Paul says. And what's left to be done after His resurrection? The resurrection of those who are in Him. And the end. You see that? Very clear, isn't it? Paul didn't hiccup. 
He's not perplexing in his writing. He's very straightforward. And I will draw your attention to this. If you look back at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, where he says, I delivered to you the gospel which was once delivered to me. Christ was born according to the Scriptures. He died according to the Scriptures. He was buried according with the Scriptures. And He was resurrected according to the Scriptures. You see the list in 3 and 4 of the Gospel? This is the same kind of list that you find in verse 24. Christ the firstfruits, then when it is coming, those who are in Christ and the end. And then He delivers the kingdom to His Father. What's left is simply Christ coming and resurrecting everyone dead and nodding to the Father in bow. This is all yours for your glory that you might be all in all. It's a beautiful teaching. It's a, it's a teaching of resurrection and victory that we proclaim. So let's look at this by steps then. Christ, first of all, Christ is the first resurrection which guarantees the full harvest of the general resurrection in verse 20. He uses a farming analogy. I know you aren't farmers. I was a farmer. I'm not a farmer anymore. I was a farmer. When I go home, I think about those days, and I'm glad I have a pulpit to preach from and not a hoe in my hand. Farming is a wonderful thing. I encourage you, even if you don't have a green thumb, to try to grow a garden. You'll understand the curse. And if you grow a garden, you'll understand what Paul's saying here. Because anyone who's ever had a garden or farm knows about the first fruit. We'll we'll give this example. You plant a fig tree. And then it grows and matures. And at the beginning of the harvest season, at the beginning of the time when you're going to get to make fig preserves and eat it with your biscuits in the morning, you get one or two pieces of fruit. Now, there's a ton of fruit on the tree, but you get one or two pieces, and they're the sweetest and the ripest and the most beautiful pieces of all. And you take them, and you mash them, and you sweeten them, and you put them on the... And and your children just ooh and ah over the greatness of those figs. That's the first fruit. It is the promise of a future harvest. In the cotton industry, which I grew up in, I didn't have any animals. I just grew, we grew cotton. When you grow over 600 acres of cotton, it's a glorious day in late September, late August, early September, I mean, when those first bowls of cotton crack and you see the white. And in two days, they're full fluff. You look out across the field and there's a smattering of white in amongst the green and you know God has been faithful and we have a crop to harvest. We're going to be able to put food on the table for another year. And Paul says, but in fact Christ has been raised the first fruits of the resurrection. What he's saying is, is that Christ's resurrection is the proof, the physical proof of the future general resurrection. In matter of fact, He is the beginning of that resurrection. He's the beginning. So when we look at Christ, we don't see Him as odd, as different from us. We see Him as, an ex- as a picture of what we will be. 
Indeed, that's why he appeared to so many people after his resurrection and said, touch me, eat with me, walk with me. Because he wanted them to see this is what it will be like when I have the general resurrection. I'll raise all those who are in the grave. This is what it will be like. This is the kind of body you will have. Notice the attitude of Paul also in this verse about the death of a believer. Look what he says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Isn't that a strange term? I told you we're all afraid of death. Paul was not afraid to die. Neither was he afraid of death. The Apostle Paul's theology was such that he didn't fear even death, I don't believe. He phrased it as asleep. And this is a common thing in the Bible. Acts 7, 59 through 60. Stephen preaching the great message to the Sanhedrin about the glories of Christ coming from the Old Testament through Moses, the great prophet and, and redeemer of his people. And then he comes to Christ and he says, you've crucified him. And he was raised. And just as he's about to teach about the resurrection, they begin to stone him. He hadn't got to the resurrection, but he sees the resurrection. He looks into heaven and sees heaven open and one standing at the right hand of God, even Jesus Christ. And this is what the passage says. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I don't know about you, but that's not a nursery rhyme that's being sung to Stephen, is it? The pounding of rocks as they hit his flesh and hit the ground around him? Some nursery rhyme. Rocking him to sleep, literally. How can a man who's being pelted with stones fall asleep? Because death has no power where Christ's resurrection has been applied. How could Stephen look at his stoners and say, don't hold it against him? Because he was in Christ and they were not. His greatest concern was not for his flesh, not for his life, but for their life spiritually. Don't hold it against him. Take my spirit. And he fell asleep. It's a beautiful picture of the, of the teaching about death in the scriptures. For us, it is simply a time to enter into our rest, into the Lord, the Lord's Sabbath. John 11, again, 11 through 14, after he said this, he's told his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And they said, well, Lord, if he's asleep, he will get recovered. And Jesus spoke to them about his death, but they thought all he meant was that he was resting. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Sleeping is a true term to use in regard to the death of a believer. Sleep. Sleep is impermanent. Because the death of the believer is not permanent. It is simply a state in which they pass through. You know, as I think about it, John Bunyan had it exactly right. In his great writing, which I've commended to you time and again, and I do again today in Pilgrim's Progress, what you read and study in Pilgrim's Progress is this great journey. And he had many friends on the journey with him. Some came, some went, some stayed, some died. But when he came to the river, one thing is true. He came by himself. The burden was gone and so were all of his friends. He stood at the bank of that cold river all alone. And he passed through. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why don't we fear evil in the shadow of death? Because death is a shadow. What's true about a shadow? It's here and it's gone. Death is not permanent, friend. Some of you come here and you live life as if death is permanent. How do I know that? Because your greatest concern is your retirement account. It's your greatest concern in life. Is to have plenty in this life. Now, I'm not preaching against retirement. That's another sermon. I'm not preaching against retirement. I have a retirement account. Well, let me tell you something. I think your retirement account speaks greatly about what you believe about the resurrection. When you have the mentality that this life is all you have, you want to live it to the fullest because then you die. But when you see the death and this life are not permanent, but simply pilgriming through, passing along through the shadow of this life and death, you hold everything lightly except Christ and you cling to Him. How does that impact you? Some of you have lost jobs and some of you are losing jobs and some of you are finding that jobs are being cut back in pay during this recession. And how you respond tells you and me what you believe about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's not pie in the sky. That's real. When you panic and you live a life of hurried panic because of these things, all you're telling the world is this life is all that there is. Some of you have expressed it through diagnosis of health into which you panicked and succumbed. Am I saying it's easy? No, I've been there. I've had the diagnosis. I've seen those I love have diagnosis that are irreversible and they die. But the way you react to that, the way you respond to that, preaches to the world whether you believe the resurrection or you don't believe it. But Christ is in fact raised from the dead. The first fruits, the promise that we will all be raised from the dead because we're all just asleep when we die. Is that how you live? Or is it all about how much you can get, how fast you can live, how much fun you can have this side of heaven, and how long you can prolong the sentence which is on us all? See, Paul lived a radical life. I don't think any of us live a radical life. I don't live a radical life. You don't live a radical life. And I think it's because we don't really believe the resurrection. We mouth that we believe it. We mentally assent to it. But our heart is not connected with this doctrine. Because when it is rightly applied, it changes how you view this world and death. Christ is the first fruits. This doesn't mean that our spiritual sleeping occurs. Jesus is clear in this teaching on death. He says that our spirit is transferred to the place of paradise immediately at our death. And those who die as the rich man go to a place of torment immediately, spiritually. Spiritually. We are all born, secondly, in this passage, under the representation of Adam. Everybody is born under Adam. All of us, all of us, look what it says in verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, he is our representative. 
Death was the result of sin. Adam sinned and this brought death into the world. Why am I straining at this? Because we don't seem to believe this. Death was introduced because Adam sinned. It's not a sickness that came on the world gradually. It's a sentence which was passed in a moment. A judicial sentence from the throne of God against Adam and all those who are like Adam. Death. Adam chose rebellion, and in choosing rebellion against God, he chose to die. And when he chose to die, we all chose to die. You chose to die, and I chose to die with Adam. You don't become punishable to death after you're born and you've lived a little while and came to some age of accountability in which you choose not to accept Christ and choose to live like the world, and then you're sentenced to death. No. From the moment you are conceived and wove together in your mother's womb, you are conceived in sin. Psalm 51 says, and you are weaved together in the innermost part of the earth, your mother's womb, and you come out a sinner. We don't sin because we have become sinners. We are sinners, therefore we begin to sin. Did you hear that? Your child is a sinner. My child, my children are sinners. They're not innocent little precious little babies. Oh, so cute. No, they're maniacal. All of them. And you were too when you were a baby. They're maniacal and they desire one thing. They desire their will. They want what's theirs and they want it now. Don't believe me? They cry, don't they? You ever heard a baby that didn't cry? That's a dangerous thing. The doctor will tell you something's wrong with the baby if it doesn't cry. When they get hungry, they get red-faced and they scream because they want something to eat. And they demand that right now you feed me. Right now. I don't care what you're doing, Mama. Feed me. It just gets worse, doesn't it? When they cry, everybody says, Oh, isn't that so cute? Bless his little heart. Give him something to eat. When that baby's two and he's in the restaurant crying next to me, I want to smack him. Don't you? <laughs> It's not cute anymore. Because then we instinctively say they're sinning. But they're sinning when they're babies too. They have no thought of Christ. No thought of God's glory. No thought of how blessed they are. They were born into a Christian family. It's all about them. And so when they grow, and some of you are still crying like spoiled brats. Just to be honest, you want your way. You're hard to be around. You're a sinner. I'm not judging you. I'm simply calling it like it is. And I'm saying to you, there's only one remedy. His name is Jesus. You are right now under Adam. Therefore, you are dead in your sins and your trespasses. You're not going to die one day. You're already dead. Sin entered the world through the one man's sin, Adam. And death spread to all men. Now, that's the words of Paul. In this is not just spirit, physical death, but spiritual death, and I've alluded to that. The all here is limited. Look at it closely. For as in Adam all die. You say, well, that's, that's not limited at all. Sure it is. All means all humans. All humans. Everyone is represented by Adam. 
Hold your place here and turn to Romans 5, 12 through 21. Paul, the apostle, writes a clear teaching, and I want to give it to you quickly in a nutshell. And then we'll move to the last point. Death came into the world, and all of us are dead because death came into the world through one man's sin. Adam, we are all rebels against God and his kingdom. All is all humans. Therefore, verse 12, just as a sin, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Skipping down in the passage, Adam who was a type of the one who was to come, sinned. What, what is this type? He is a type of Christ. He is known as the first Adam. For if many died through one man's trespass. Now that's what I'm trying to tell you. The all is limited. What is its boundary? Its boundary is all who are in Adam. Who is in Adam? All human beings are in Adam. And so therefore all human beings have sinned in Adam and all human beings are guilty of sin and deserve the punishment of sin which is death, both physical and spiritual death. Right now you're sitting here outside of Christ, inside of Adam and you are dead spiritually. And you say, I'm not dead, I'm alive. No, you're dead. The condemnation of God is over you this very moment. All this yet to happen is for you to die and fall into the terrible hand of a judging God. That's all that's left. You're already dead spiritually. And when you die physically, if you die physically outside of Christ, inside of Adam, you will die for eternity. Both physically, you will die, and spiritually, you will die. If the physical death was simply death and then it was no more, then this passage would make no sense. Because as all die in Adam, so all are alive in Christ. So if Christ's people are resurrected, Adam's people are also resurrected. If Adam's people are not resurrected, if you don't believe in eternal punishment, then you can't believe in eternal reward. If you don't believe that you will be raised up outside of Christ in Adam and face the judgment of hell for all of eternity, you cannot believe that those who are in Christ will be resurrected and enjoy the fruits of Christ for all of eternity. They're tied together. All in Adam are dead. I'm laboring the point because I don't know that you believe it truly. This is so mistaught, so misunderstood, that many are here with a clear conscience thinking, what's the big deal? And so therefore, when you're saved, your salvation is not all that great because you never understood that you were under condemnation. You never understood that you were already dead. You never understood that when Christ saved you, He raised you spiritually from the dead and He will raise you physically from the ground. You don't get your salvation. You sing a song like Amazing Grace and just ho-hum. John Newton understood the power of Amazing Grace because he had lived the wickedness of a deadly life. And so we see that we are all dead in Adam. And finally, we see that those who believe in Christ are transferred from Adam to the representation of Christ. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. Just like death came to the world, so resurrection has come to the world. Adam was the first Adam. Christ is the second Adam. Adam is the representative of all humans. Christ is the representative of who? 
That's the question. Who does Christ represent? It says, In Christ shall all be made alive. Maybe he's teaching, maybe he's teaching universalism. Maybe, preacher, we don't need to worry about all this get saved or not be saved or whatever, because we're all going to be in Christ. That's why he wrote about the resurrection the way he did in the next verse. I want you to look at it. He wants to make it clear. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. You say, where's the mention of the dead that are outside of Christ? He doesn't emphasize them because he's emphasizing those who are in Christ. The resurrection of the ungodly and unsaved dead is taught throughout the Bible, but here the resurrection of those in Christ is emphasized because everybody's not in Christ. Everybody's in Adam, all humans. That's the limit. That's the boundary of the all dealing with Adam is all humans. But then we move over to Christ and the boundary is different. It's not all humans. It's those who are in Christ. And he teaches it in Romans 5. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more by the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. All are in Adam if you're human. And only those who receive the gift of the grace of God in Christ will be in Christ. You see it? The boundary is different about the all. All does not always mean all, does it? Now, I don't want to confuse you, so I'll make it plain. When I say, Amy, I drank all the milk. Is she left to believe I have consumed all the milk on the face of the planet? Maybe. She might peek around the corner and look at me and see if I'm swollen up. No, he's not swollen. Oh, he's got the refrigerator door open. He's got a carton of milk in his hand, and it's empty. He means he drank all the milk which we own in our refrigerator at this moment. He drank it all, all the milk. All doesn't always mean all, does it? No. We understand in using all that all can mean all as in all the world, or it can mean all as in all in a nation, or it can mean all as in all in a city, or it can mean all as in all in my family, or it can mean all in the sense of all of me. All can mean a lot of things. In its context, it has to mean what the context dictates. In this context, all in Adam means all of us. Every human being, and all in Christ, can only mean those who are what? In Christ, who have received, as Romans 5 says, the gift of the grace of God through Christ. I labor at that because the resurrection hinges. The resurrection is the doctrine which that doctrine hinges on. 
When Christ was raised from the dead, he was victorious over the sin and death and the grave. And if you are outside of Christ, you live in the condemnation of sin and death and the grave. You are in Adam. If you choose to remain there, there is a day coming when you will be judged with Adam, race, a sinner, and guilty of hell. So what's the solution? We close by bringing home the solution, bringing home this idea. We are all sinners. There is none accepted. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all are sinners. And we are all being called by God to come to the only one who can save us. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He who comes to me will be saved. If you come to Him, you will be saved. And you can't come to the Father except by Him. Jesus gave the meaning of this coming when He said, I have come that you may have life and you may have that life more abundantly. What does more abundantly mean? It means eternal. It means resurrection. It means everlasting. It means you come to Christ, you get Christ, and Christ is all you need. We are all sinners and we are being called to come to Christ. And how do we come to Christ? Except to repent of our sin and believe in His name. Listen, you say the sermon is complicated at some points, Carlton. I mean, you've emphasized this all thing and Adam and you've emphasized these, what I view to be minuscule points of the text. Well, we might disagree then. These aren't minuscule points. Eternity hangs on them. How? We see repentance is required for salvation. What is repentance? What is repentance? It's turning from something towards something else. You can't turn to Christ until you have turned away from yourself. When Jesus says repent and believe, He's not saying repent about drinking a beer or having sex outside of marriage or repent about that lie you told when you were five. He's not talking about that at all. He's saying repent of who you are. You are Adam's son. Repent of that fact. Repent of who you are. All of you. All of you. Turn from that. And then you come. You come to what? Christ. Repentance is turning from yourself and clinging to Christ. And how do I cling to Christ? I believe in Him. Believe in Him? Yes, believe in Him. It was explained to some children in our church just this week. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It does not simply mean I know about Jesus. The demons know about Jesus. They even know He's the Son of God. What does belief mean? Well, He gives us the meaning of it in His parables about the kingdom in Matthew 13. He is the pearl of great price. Indeed, a man will sell everything he has to buy that one pearl. He who loses his life will gain it. He who gains his life will lose it. Belief is losing your life. Belief is repenting of yourself and coming to Christ. Belief is turning from this world and the things of this world to Him. Everything about you needs to be repented of. And you need to hold on to Christ. 
It's treasure in Christ. It's finding all satisfaction in Christ. It's saying all I have is Christ. That's belief. Anything short of that is not saving faith. Paul says he's the first fruit which guarantees our resurrection because all were in Adam dying. Now all in Christ are made alive. But how am I made alive? Repent of who I am and come to the only one who is life, Jesus Christ, and be saved. What does that mean? I get Jesus. And what's the final application that I would make? Beyond believing for the saved man or woman or child, what was the application? Know how great your wickedness is. Sin is not something that's happening out there. Sin is in us. Know how wicked you are. But secondly, know how precious and holy Jesus is. And so know the one you've held on to, Jesus. And celebrate. Live a life that reflects the resurrection. That's celebration. And answer this question as you go home. Is it true that all you have is Christ? I can't answer that for you. Some of you have Christ and your family. And you hold on to Christ and you embrace your family. And when Dave says, think of something that he could take away from you, that would be all the world to you. It was your family. And you thought about it. And you say, I don't know, Carlton. If he takes my wife and my children, if he takes my husband and my children, I don't know where I'll be. I don't know if I'll really believe. Wrestle with it. Don't wait till you're there and you get the call from the state trooper and your wife and children are dead in a car wreck before you decide whether you've got Christ and nothing else. If you wait till then, you will reject Christ and go the way of the world. You must die to your family. For some of you, you're holding Christ and you're holding your image. I just want my good name. You need to die to that thought. You are not good. Neither do you have a good name. As long as you want your good name, you cannot have Christ. You must have Christ and nothing else. For some of you are holding Christ... And you've embraced status and wealth. You say, no, that's not me. Yes, it is because you spend every waking hour trying to figure out how you will make enough to live this life comfortably. You can't do this with Jesus. You must do this. And that's all. If you hold here and here, you're not holding Him. You're holding a God made in your own image. It is not Christ. You are in Adam. Come to Christ. How do I come to Christ? Repent of everything on this side of the ledger. Me, my family, my success, my name, my wealth, everything. I lost it all. And I've gained it all only in Christ. And we're going to play a song. I think it states this call. And I want you to just pray and contemplate the words and make it your prayer. And it'll be in a way of dismissal. We'll have a benediction after this and we're going to go home. But this is so serious to me. If you don't know Christ.